0: We turn now in the scriptures again, uh, this time to the epistle of Paul to Titus, to Titus and the third chapter, and we are going to read together uh, verses 1 to 8 of this uh, third chapter of Titus. Uh, So the epistle of Paul to Titus and the third chapter, and we'll begin to read at verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarrelling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Saviour Let's bow our heads again a moment before we come to hear God's word. But we do ask that you would speak to us. We ask that by the Holy Spirit you would open the scriptures to us this morning. We would see and hear things of our risen Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. and We would have our hearts turned to him afresh from the vain things of this world. Speak to us, we pray. Speak to any here who do not know you that they may see the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine that you have a communication from a solicitor, that you have been named in someone's will. You have in fact been made heir of a wealthy individual, someone that you've never met, someone in fact you never even heard of. Certainly someone from whom you had no right or expectation that you would receive anything. And with the will comes this instruction. You have been provided with this wealth. You've been given this new position for your own enjoyment. And that by it you may also do good for others. I wonder what you would do in those circumstances. Well, what each of us would perhaps do with this new position would differ. But what would surely not differ, or certainly what ought not to to differ, is that we would feel an immense sense of gratitude to the person who would put us into this position. And we would surely have a desire when we heard that intention that we ought to do good from this new position we have. We would surely resolve that our intention would be to fulfill that calling we had been given. And as we look at our passage today, we find that God in his mercy has done something similar for his people, though far more incredible. God has saved his people, though there was no obligation upon him to do so, and we'll see that. And he's done so at incredible cost, at the cost of the death of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he calls on his people to follow him. And to be, as we just read in verse 8, devoted to good works. I want us to look at this morning, at this passage in Titus 3. And I want us to do so under four headings. Four questions we're going to ask and to which we're going to find the answers in this passage. First of all, what were we? What are we by nature? Secondly, what has God done? Thirdly, why did God do it? And then fourthly, what must we do in response? First of all then, what were we? What are we by, by nature? And we find the answer to this question in verse 3 of our passage. And we're going to come to that in a moment. But first of all, I think that it would be helpful to set before us what we should be. And we find that in verses 1 and 2. So let me read that again. Remind then, this is Paul writing to Titus, telling him that these are what he needs to, needs to tell to those Christians who are in Crete where he's been sent. And he says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarrelling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. This is the calling of men and women, Those who are made in God's image, created to honour God by honouring those that God has placed in positions of authority over us and created in our day-to-day behaviour to uh, be uh, kind and good to our neighbours. We read that in verse 2. while verse 1 focuses on those in authority over us. To be those who speak evil of no one, those who avoid quarrelling and so on. This is what we are made to be. This is the calling of men and women created in God's image. The purpose for which God has made us. But then, what do we read about what we are actually like by nature in verse 3? Let me read that. So this Paul sets out the ideal, the calling, but then he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Here we have what we are in our natural state. Now as you read this, some of these things may perhaps chime with you more than others. But aside from God's grace, they do describe us to a certain extent. And I would just note here how Paul applies this to himself as well. He says... (laughs) We ourselves were once. Paul had been a Pharisee, a religious man. Outwardly the, the very pinnacle of respectability. And I just note this to say that don't imagine the fact that you're sitting in church somehow excludes you from this. Don't imagine that even your membership of the church means that somehow this doesn't apply to you. Don't imagine even the fact that other people see you as some sort of paragon of virtue. That that excludes you from this. No, says Paul, this is what I was like as well, even when I was a Pharisee. The holiest of the holy, if you like, by human standards. No, we are all by nature slaves, says Paul, to various passions and pleasures. We do things by nature because it feels good. Now God has given us things to enjoy in this world. And enjoying things is not in itself a sin. But Paul says by nature we are enslaved to passions and pleasures. We're not in control of them. They are controlling us. They are our God. They are the things that we worship, that we go after. Backbiting. Gossiping. Our days passed in malice. And envy. Our calling isn't that, but that is what we do, don't we? Because you know, <laughs> talking about people behind their backs, slacking them off, makes us feel good, doesn't it? Makes us maybe feel better about ourselves. And maybe for you, it's it's not so much that. Maybe it's it's lust. Maybe it's enslavement to pornography or adultery or fornication, or just a wandering eye, or just a wandering eye. Maybe for you, it's something else. But this, says Paul, is what we are by nature. While our calling, in verses 1 to 2, is the opposite. And as a result of this, we are subject to God's wrath. Verse 5, we'll go on and we'll look at this in a moment. But it speaks about a washing that happens by the Holy Spirit. And the implication of that is that our state, aside from that, is one of uncleanness. And this idea of uncleanness, it's a metaphor that runs throughout the Bible. That comp- compares our sinfulness to uncleanness. Those things we've spoken about in verse 3, they make us, in this sense, unclean. That is, in need of washing. Not fit to come before God. Here, imagine you have an appointment to see the king. King Charles Third, and, and that would be quite a big deal, wouldn't it? Uh, and going to see the king would involve uh, probably a certain change in your attire. Um, you wouldn't be able to sort of go straight from gardening with grass all over your boots and spreading grass from your clothes and, or straight from decorating where you're kind of still trailing through bits of paint on your fingers and so on everywhere. And you couldn't do that. And the image of God of, in the Bible is something similar. That God is a great king and Lord. There is none higher than him. And our sin pollutes us. It makes us unclean. It makes us un, unable and unworthy to come before him. But even that idea of uncleanness doesn't exhaust it. As I've already said, our sinfulness actually makes us subject to the just wrath and anger of God. Against all that is evil. Have you realised that? Now perhaps you think that you're pretty good. And maybe, by kind of the world standards, maybe you are. Although we deceive ourselves about that, don't we? God is holy and he sees all. He sees the, the motives behind what you do. He sees the desires. He knows it all. And his judgment is that there is none that is righteous. No, not one. His assessment is what we read here in verse 3. That we are slaves to passions and pleasures. Passing our days in malice and envy. Have you realized that? Have you realized what your stage By nature is. Well that's the first question. What are we? What were we? But now secondly. What has he done? And the answer to this. Is that despite our rebellion against God. Despite that description in verse 3. God has saved us. You Read that in verses 5 and 6. He saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Saviour. Now there's a lot to be unpacked in these verses. Uh, Firstly, we need to have some discussion of of how that that last part of verse 5 should be translated or understood. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's, really, there's really two options. It could be saying two things that, that we have here. The, the washing of regeneration and also the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but the fact that, that in verse 6 he seems to look back on this as one thing. means means that certainly today I'm going to be taking them as, as one thing together. What we have here is the washing of both regeneration and renewal. Which is that washing which is by the love of the Holy Spirit. The first thing then that God has gifted is this washing of regeneration and renewal which he gives by the Holy Spirit. In other words, by the Holy Spirit, God has washed the sins of his people and has given them a new heart. Paul is is picking up on something that was promised in the book of Ezekiel. Verses 36. Let me just read that to you. Verses Ezekiel 36 God has fulfilled what he was talking about there in Ezekiel, says Paul. He's poured out his spirit. He's applied this washing, this sprinkling of water. He has given this new heart. And this is incredible. Have you thought about what it means that the third person of the Holy Trinity, one who is in fact God, is active in the lives of believers, of those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? That he has been poured out upon the church. If that's incredible. It's actually even something more than this. He has poured out the Holy Spirit, verse six. Sorry, verse, yes, verse six. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The Spirit comes on the basis of the Son's work, sent by the Son, proceeding from the Father and the Son. And it is on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ, of his life and death for his people, that the Spirit comes and applies this washing of regeneration and renewal. Unstated here, but implicit, is the whole work of the Lord Jesus Christ. is his incarnation, his becoming man, his life of perfect obedience under the law, his death on the cross in place of sin, his resurrection the third day, his ascension into heaven. It is this which enables what we read in verse 7 that we are justified by his grace, that is, declared righteous, declared clean, to continue that washing metaphor. Because Jesus Christ takes our sin upon himself so that he is punished for it in our place. And not only that, but it goes the other way as well. Not only. Is, is our sin put on him. But God sees his righteousness as our righteousness. His goodness as our goodness. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this work is all God's work. From the father who sent to the son who died for his people to the spirit who applies this to the Christian. And that's why we read there in verse 5 that he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Our works had nothing to do with it. Were you aware of that? This is what God's work is. You know our basic human instinct is actually the opposite of this. We look within ourselves for salvation. Either we think that we are good enough for God as we are. We say, well, I'm, I think I'm a good person. I don't see why God should punish me. Well, God's verdict is what we've just read in verse 3. The alternative is, is that we just try really, really hard. We think, well, I know I'm a sinner, but I just need to do better. I need, to, I need to do these, these good works, I need to give this amount of money to charity, I need to do these things, or I need to stop doing this or the other. And maybe if I do that, then God will look upon me, I'll somehow earn his favour. That's the instinct for a lot of people. You know, I, I tend to find certainly with some people that, that no matter how much I've told them that, that this is not the case... They still think when the subject comes up again that the reason why I, as a Christian, try to live a moral life is because I'm trying to earn my way to heaven. That's what they still think. I've told them that isn't the case. But still, this idea is so ingrained within us that that's the way that many people think. And is that you? This morning, I ask. Do you think that the favor of God can be earned? Perhaps you're sitting here this morning thinking that your place, you're sitting in one of these rows is earning merit or favour in some sense with God. That You're ticking off some sort of box. Perhaps you're you're proud of your life, of your outward moral character. But will you hear Paul this morning? Will you hear what he says your state by nature is in verse 3? And will you hear what he says in verse 5? That it's not because of works of righteousness which we have done there is nothing that you can do in your own strength rather the way of salvation is to come to Jesus Christ to the saviour to turn from sin and self and to turn to him to trust in him and his death on the cross for you if you will trust in him maybe for you it's more subtle perhaps you do acknowledge this but maybe even as a Christian you, you fall into sin And you you have this idea that that you need to kind of do a certain amount of good things. Or you need to to go a certain amount of time before you can dare come to God again. But it's the same idea again. It's this idea still of works, righteousness. The fact that there's something in you. By virtue of your own works or effort that is going to make you pleasing to God. Now, don't get me wrong. When we fall into sin, we must turn from it. We must cease that by God's grace and strength. But it isn't based on anything that any effort we've done that we come to God. The forgiveness is free. We're to come to Him and to look to Him for the strength to turn from sin, not turn from sin and then somehow we're we're able to come to God by like, because we have somehow earned it now. The answer to the question, "What has God done?" is everything. He has saved us from sin, washing and renewing us by the Holy Spirit. We spoke in a previous point about that. Metaphor of washing and it comes up again here, doesn't it? In this washing of the Holy Spirit. It's as if you or I are called to this appointment for, with King Charles, but, but we've been working in the garden and we are filthy. And, and the washing machine's broken and we haven't got any spare clothes. And the bath and the shower are broken as well. We've got no way of finding suitable attire or getting ourselves suitably cleaned in order to come to see the King. But then so much did King Charles want to see you. That he provided the garments. He provided the cleaning cleaning facilities. That would be amazing wouldn't it? But You know what we read in this passage is far beyond even that. Let's read verse 7 again. So that being justified. Clean. Declared righteous by his grace. We might become heirs. According to the hope of eternal life. By union with Christ. We become joint heirs with him. Thereby not only escaping the penalty for sin. But being made heirs also of eternal life. Being made those who will be raised with Christ. At that final day in bodies like his. Resurrection bodies. And heirs ultimately of the new heavens and the new earth. To extend the King Charles analogy it's as if. Not only did he do all that we've already described, but it's as if he took you in your, in your filthiness and he made you a prince. Gave you the right to share in all that is his, except in the case that being, being made a, a joint heir with Christ is far beyond anything that any king of this world or age could give. It's to be one who shall inherit the heavens and the earth. What will you do with this? If you've never known God here this morning, we should all examine ourselves on this point. You come. You receive this from the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ died for sin. He died for your sins if you will trust in Him. Will you cease from self reliance? Will you cease from seeking things in yourself? Will you look to Him? Oh, we've had what we were by nature, we've had what has God done? But now, thirdly, why has he done it? And we find this answer again in our passage. Let's just read verse five again: "He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy." You want to know why it is that God has done this? Ultimately the answer is that he did it. Out of mercy. And it was a mercy which was without any merit. Without any cause that was within us. Just look at verse 3 again. This is what we are. Foolish, disobedient, led astray. Slaves to passions and pleasures. Passing our days in malice and envy. Hated by others and hating One another. That's our state by nature. That describes you and I aside from God. But then what do we read in verse 4. Following on from that. This is what we are. Hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our saviour appeared. He saved us. Not because of works done by us. In righteousness. In the midst of our sin. That we read about in verse 3. What appeared? Was it as some sort of spark in our nature? Showing that there was, after all, some hope for us. Was there some resolve in our hearts? Were there some works on our parts that would bring God to view us as worthy of redemption? No, not by works of righteousness that we have done. Rather, what appeared in the darkness? It was what we read in verse 4. The goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour. The goodness and and literally the philanthropy, the love for mankind of God. God loved men and women. And in the midst of the darkness of sin, this love appeared in the form of Jesus Christ and his work for us know this if you're a Christian saved by the grace of God. It's not because there was anything in you. It's not because you were better than others. Because you had some sort of innate moral compass that was superior. You hadn't fallen as far as others. It wasn't because you'd done some particularly impressive work. It wasn't even that God saw something in you that meant maybe you thought you had the potential to be a Christian wasn't even based on your own decision for Christ. What does Jesus say? No one can come to me except the Father draw him. No, says Paul, we ourselves were foolish. We were disobedient, we were led astray. And yet in the midst of this, God sent his only begotten son, born of a virgin, to live and die for those who hated him. God commends his love to us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, if you were invited to see King Charles, it would be likely because of something that you'd done. Some work of charity you'd done that's maybe set you apart from others. Some way that you excelled in some um, activity or profession that our society values. There's none of that here. In God's eyes, by nature, we are unrighteous. Even our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. What can we do in response to such grace? We are, by nature, unworthy. Unable to come. Unable to rid ourselves of the load of sin and the penalty that that it bears. And yet, on the basis of his love and mercy through Christ, God has made a way for us to come to him. This should astound us. This should cause us to rejoice. Surely we never can repay such love to us. But we can turn to this one holy. We can praise him. We can, as Paul says, bring our lives and offer them as living sacrifices acceptable to God. And this leads us on to a final question What can we do? in response and the answer surely must be to fall down in adoration and service before this one who has done all for us without any merit or cause in us I asked you earlier didn't I what you you would do if, if someone made you his heir and said that the purpose behind it was for your own enjoyment but also that you should do good with this new position that you've been given. Well God has a purpose behind why he has saved you if you're a Christian. He has saved us for good works. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.8. And we find that drawn out in this passage this morning. Look at verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Titus, says Paul, is to insist on these things as he speaks to those Christians in Crete. Is to insist on them so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. For Paul, there is a direct relationship between the truth he is insisting upon here and good works because the truth Of God's free grace is not, as is sometimes suggested, an excuse to to do anything because, well, God will forgive me. No, it's not that. To imagine that is to miss the point. God has not saved you so that you can continue in sin. He has saved you not simply from hell, but from sin itself. Not just the consequences of sin, but from sin. From slavery to evil. Have you understood the full import of what Paul is saying in this passage? What does he say in verse 3? By nature we're slaves to passions and pleasures. We're slaves to our sinful desires. And salvation is saving from that. To be free. For righteousness. We've spoken about the grace of God. We've spoken about the purpose of salvation. Will you serve this God with rejoicing this morning? You desire this freedom that God gives by his grace in Jesus Christ. People think that a life of sin is a life of freedom, don't they? That isn't what the Bible says. And that isn't the truth. It's enslavement. It's to be not free to do what is truly good because your will isn't free. It's captivated by the things of this world. By your fallen nature. We've already spoken about verses one and two, haven't we? But that, those verses tell us our calling in the world. Will you hearken to them? In contrast to our natural impulses as Christians, are to make every effort to be good neighbors, to be submissive to rulers and authorities. That's in contrast to our natural disobedience. Rather, we are to be obedient to those in authority. Those, as Paul teaches in Romans 13, that whom God has set over us, whom he has ordained, and by submitting to whom, insofar as it is a good work, we are in fact rendering obedience also to God. And then broadening out the instruction in verse 2, Paul speaks about how Christians are to speak evil of no, of no one. And in fact, they are to show perfect courtesy to all men. I wonder, is that you? Are you devoted to good works? Avoiding quarrelling. Being gentle. Rendering obedience where it is due. We will fail in this. In this age, even as Christians. We still have a fallen nature within us. The old man. But as we've heard of the glories of the salvation that we have in Christ this morning, will we we be stirred up by God's grace to seek afresh and anew this ideal to which he calls us? To turn around those bitter and backbiting envious nature that we have and rather to follow what Paul calls us to here? Well, we need to conclude. But as we do so, can think back to how we began this morning I asked you didn't I what you would do if someone made you an heir someone to whom you had no obligation, no expectation of receiving anything surely you would be full of gratitude to such a person and that request which was made in the will that you use your new position for good, surely you would be stirred up to seek to to do that in so far as you were able well God has saved us He has made us heirs of all things with Jesus Christ. Will you follow him? Will you also honour the intention behind that salvation? That we turn from sin and are instead, as Paul calls us to be here, devoted to good works. Amen.